Which way is catering with Justine and Bruce? Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. This episode of Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce is brought to you by Brannigan, Inc. For nearly two decades, Brannigan, Inc. has energized brands in the entertainment industry, helping fairs and festivals connect with audiences. Their creative, results-driven marketing approach drives attendance and makes communications fun. Check them out at BranniganInc.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Weather Insurance. Spectrum Weather Insurance provides a variety of rain, heat, severe weather, and event cancellation insurance customized for your specific event. They have the experience and expertise that hundreds of events rely on each year. Visit them at SpectrumWeatherInsurance.com. Have you ever had a time when you thought to yourself, I should have been a cowboy? Like you're at a bar, you see some chick hitting on a dude and he's a cowboy and you're like, that's what I should have been. I should have been a cowboy. I tried being a cowboy. For Halloween? I don't think I could be a cowboy. Yeah? Because I had a pair of cowboy boots. (laughs) Here we go. Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. Here it is. I had a pair of cowboy boots. So I thought, hey, I'm going to wear cowboy boots to this event. Mm -hmm. And I was working at a radio station, and I thought, you know what? Player here is going to wear some cowboy (laughs) boots, so I'm going to really make a statement. (laughs) Well, we were working this event, and it was at the museum. Mm -hmm. So the event we were working, I didn't know that we would have to do a lot of moving around. Sure. Which we had to. So by the end of the night, <laughs> my feet were sore. Oh, you had blisters? Yeah. Oh. After wearing my cowboy boots. <laughs> after that, I've never worn them again. So if if anybody's got any tips about cowboy boots and breaking them in, mm-hmm. please pass them along because I do not have the <laughs> tips on that. So if I can't even walk in cowboy boots... I can't even pull the rest of it off. Yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't be a cowboy then. Yeah. Mm. Nah, you can roll it. I don't care. I'm good. Okay. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Welcome to another episode, everyone. Of which way is catering with Justine and Bruce? Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. And today we have a great guest, and it's Toby Keith. And Toby, welcome to our podcast. That's great to be here. Can you tell me stories? When I mention the name Variety Attraction. I've worked a lot of shows for George, and George always gave me blocks of dates. Probably the most interesting date of the, probably my favorite day of the story of the whole thing was that uh, George fed my family. I mean, he, he really did. He, he made my year, him and a couple of other promoters kind of filled my books, and then I could cherry pick dates after that. But we were on a little show. There was two shows. I had to work two shows. I had a, I had a, a matinee, and then a later show. And the stage, all the stage had was a harp over it. That was the lid to the uh, stage. It looked like a, um, it was a, it was a portable stage, 
and it sat out in the middle of this field at a small fair and the people could come just come out in this field and stand there and watch the show and so the first show we did uh, you gotta keep in mind i only had two or three hits um two or three songs released and uh so the matinee show was really, really hot. The sun was out. So it was about, I don't know, probably full capacity. Um, the place would probably hold five, 6,000 people. There was probably 800 there. And uh, so we went out. It was 103. <laughs> <laughs> we played the show. And uh, my, my set was supposed to be uh, 75 minutes. And people were, it was free. If you bought your way into the fair, you could come to the show for free. And people were just wandering in and out. And sure. finally, we, it was just burning up up there. And there was, and I, and I come, I said, I'm just going to do this song and call it. So he came to the bus and David Milam was my, who's my production manager. Now he was my tour manager. Then he, he answers the door and George has got about one inch of a cigar left. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, Toby, the boy came off uh, three minutes early. And, uh, David said, we'll make it up. We'll make it up in the next show. George, just that quick. Just answered him. He said, well, I just wanted you to know the boy come off early. So I came off at 72 minutes instead of 75. <laughs> so, so the second show, we go second show, and it's packed. Everybody's getting off work. Everybody's coming to the fair. All the people that know the hits are coming. And the place is really full. And about an hour in, it starts raining, and it rains harder. And it rains harder. And, and I, I was teed off i was teed off at george for calling me on the three minutes earlier uh-huh. and david said be sure to make his three minutes up <laughs> so i turned around and look lightning striking everywhere people are doing mudslides down the hill it's <laughs> pouring it's pouring down rain and the tarp starts leaking and Uh-oh. the uh, monitor board is not ours it's it's uh back some of that backline stuff there was provided my local company Mm -hmm. and it starts raining and that tarp starts dripping and george is standing back there he's got about an inch of a cigar in his mouth (laughs) again holding up (laughs) the little the little tarp on the corner over the monitor board in the back has kind of gotten heavy and has fallen trying to fall in and george is back there holding it up with it water running down his arm and his head his cigar is wet (laughs) so He's trying to hold everything off, and I thought, I'm just going to make you stand over there and be wet, and I played 30 <laughs> minutes longer, so still playing 75, I added another 30, and made George stand back there with his hand up and water just running all over him for 30 minutes. He'd switch arms, you know. Yeah. So I get done, and I thought, that'll fix you, George Moffat, and I went back to the bus, and he come up on the bus, and I thought he was going to say, damn, boy. He came up and said, above and beyond the call of duty, son. He was happy. (laughs) (laughs) 
So was there ever a time that George came on your bus after a show with any type of gift or anything like that? I don't remember. He may have. Um, I mean, like a local belt buckle or something, you know, from the fair or maybe a gift from fair, but I don't, um, may have given me, tell you what he never gave me. He never gave me a good cigar. He was, (laughs) (laughs) he saved all them for himself. Yeah. Yeah. But he was, uh, he was very important. And I told him one of the last, I hadn't seen him in several years. Um, I hadn't worked very many fairs or anything, you know, I'd been just doing amphitheaters and I hadn't seen him in years. And TK, my manager brought him up on the, on the bus somewhere. And, uh, and I told him, I said, I want you to know that you were important to me when I was, uh, when I was breaking out, it was, uh, it was important. And, and there was times on some of his great big stuff, um, even later on, if we worked one or two state fairs that fell into our amphitheater stuff, uh, he would, it, it was, it was a difference maker to me if it was a George Moffat day. So I would say, yeah, we got to do that for him. But he was, he was that important to uh, a lot of artists. And we always knew about fair buyers convention, um, that, we were going to have 45 or 50 shows from two or three guys. And George was one of them. What we always love is Justine and I love it. When we mention something about variety attractions and George Moffat, that everybody always has, they always break out their best George Moffat impersonation. George, Toby, <laughs> your boy come off early here. <laughs> yours might be the best one. Yeah, I, I think you're I top running. I've got him down. He, Toby, you, you above and beyond the call of duty, young man. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the British George Moffat, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. He's got this thing, uh, Sean, he's got that little sh- sh- in his voice, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. A little whisper. But he was the cat, man. He, he really helped us. He was a. Uh, he was important to a lot of us when we were first coming out. He, you know, if you go take a tour, you're a new act and you go take a big tour. Like at the time I broke out, if you could get on like Reba or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you could get on Alabama or Reba or, or what, whatever the big, uh, big shows were, I think Brooks and Dunn may have been one of the big ones in, but, you could catch one of them big shows and get a, they really wouldn't pay you much. They'd just say, Hey, they just basically give you enough to show up. And then you, you're kind of building your career by being in front of these audiences on these stages. But when you go out on your own, you just need dates and volume. And, uh, he was, uh, but he was always fair. He would say, I'll buy, if you'll buy, if you'll take 20 dates, uh, you'll take 20 dates at this number i'll give you two dates at more than your more than your price he he was always good about you know cutting a deal but being fair 
In those early days of the 90s and doing those variety attractions dates, we have a little tidbit from Todd Bolton. He said that David, your tour manager, used to travel from show to show in a bread truck. When David first came to work, I'd known David. David's parents, John and Diana Milam, they had Milam booking agency in Texas. So when I was cutting, when we were playing bars before, before we ever did any recordings, when we were just being a bar band traveling around, I I had met David and I knew his parents had the booking agency down there. So David would come out and uh, and hang out with me. If I was around the Dallas Metro, anywhere close, Milam would come over there and we'd be there four or five nights. David would come over there and just hang out. And he was a good dude. And so when I got my recording contract, they said, uh, hey, you got a hit. Should have been a cowboy hit. You got to get a T-shirt and sell it. And I was like, it's just me and five guys and a road manager, sound man. You know, that's all mm-hmm. it's all on the bus. I don't have anybody to sell that. And they said, well, you need to hire somebody. And I thought, well, who can I trust? So I called David and I said, you want to come out here and go on the road with us? And he said, sure. And he's single and everything. So he said, yeah, I'll go. And they bought a, uh, a van. And we called it the bread truck. But the reason it takes so much, take, takes so much abuse is because everybody else was on this nice Silver Eagle bus going down the road. And he's over here driving this van. But it was a, we 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 made fun of it, called it the bread truck, but it was mm-hmm. a uh, it was a box truck, and uh, David basically would drive it in to wherever we were playing, and he would um, set the t-shirts up or deliver them to the venue, whatever if we sold them or if the venue sold them, and uh, he would count them in, count them out, and then he would. Uh, he had all the next day to get wherever he needed to go. So he could sleep there, get up, drive eight hours, whatever, drive six hours to the next venue. As long as he was there by two or three o'clock in the afternoon, he had plenty of time. And so he did that a while. And then my road manager got married and left. And they said, who's going to be a road manager now? He only lasted a year and he got married and left the organization. And I said, I'd rather hire another T-shirt guy and make David Milam my tour manager. Oh, nice. Awesome. So, Toby, before you were a very successful singer-songwriter, were you another one of the oil rig guys? I had worked uh, second the second I got out of high school. I really wanted to go to college and uh, be a petroleum engineer. And my dad was mid-continent regional manager for a worldwide oil field service company. And he said, you can go to school four or five years and get that degree, but we hire all these guys for X amount of money. He said, you can go to work for me. We have schools that will fly you to Houston two weeks at a time, and you can go to schools that benefit our company only. You know, they'll benefit mm-hmm. you with our so that instead of taking a broad range of classes, 
these these classes for uh, Weatherford were specifically designed to teach you the products and the um, business that they had. And he goes, you'll be making two or three times uh, in the time it'd take you to go to college, you'll be making two or three times what these guys made uh, make coming out of college and us hire them. We hire them all the time. But you'll be so far down the road, they've still got to learn all the stuff you're you're learning. And I said, okay. So I thought about it, and I said, all right. So I got in there, and I had a band. We were playing on the weekends, and uh, I was making a lot of money. And then about three years in, the whole oil field industry went bust worldwide, mm-hmm. just boom. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow, what am I going to do now? So I tried a couple, I tried a couple different jobs and kept playing. And finally, a guy from Texas called and said, um, "I heard you guys at a uh, a bar up in Oklahoma, and I own a booking agency down here, and I could I can book you guys if you want to travel around and do it." And so I went to the guys and I said you guys want to do this? And some of them did and some of them didn't, but we took off and just started working five, six nights a week. Wow. That's awesome. Now, how did the, how did the songwriting come about with you? Because you've been very successful at that. Not everybody can do that. Well, I was, uh, when I was in high school, there was a guy who had a, uh, he was older than us and he had a, uh, he, he managed a uh, apartment, or yeah, he managed apartment complex, and this apartment complex had a common room where, it's like anybody that lived there could rent this for a deposit and use it for birthday parties or ceremonies or get to any kind of a get together. So on Tuesday nights, he would, him and some of his cronies, would get guitars out, and uh, they wrote songs. And there would be 15 or 20 people come over there, and the girls would sit cross-legged on the floor. They would play these songs they wrote. One, a couple of my buddies had said, hey, have you been over there? It's pretty cool. So I went over there, and I noticed how everybody in the room was mesmerized that these guys had written these songs. And I was like, they aren't even that good at songs. You know? <laughs> I was like, Just because they wrote them, people are mesmerized. Uh-huh. I, said, That's, I started writing songs. And I tell people all the time, I say, you know, you write 300 songs and you write a good one. Then you write 200 songs, you write another good one. You write 100 songs, you write another good one. And that gap just keeps closing. I, I wrote two or three songs that I liked and I went over there. And uh, somebody said, hey, he's written some songs. They said, we'll play them. And it blew everybody away. They were like, Wow. And I could see right then that I was like, whatever this is that I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Awesome. I, I wasn't wrong about this. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I know. First of all, I, I love music. So um, it's very hard to stump me on the radio. You know, if I'm listening, to, if I'm listening to classic country, I'll get 99 out of a hundred. You may, you may stump me on a, obscure Roy Drusky tune, but, <laughs> you know, but 
I'm going to just lay them out. I'm, I'm going to know every voice. I'm going to know most of the lyrics. So once you have that uh, love to build that catalog in your brain, then you uh, it makes it easy to want to – you understand lyric too by, by having all that in your mind. You understand how lyrics are put together. And so I just uh, I just said – I'm going to start doing this. So when Harold Shedd signed me to Mercury, I had a six song demo and I had taken it in. Uh, the manager of this club, Oklahoma city, his nephew played and wrote songs for George Strait, played with George Strait. And, and, uh, he, he had written a couple of hits for George. Oh, mm-hmm. anyway, he, uh, by them recording, they knew Jimmy Bowen over Capitol. And so, uh, they got me a meeting to come in and meet with, uh, Jimmy Bowen. And so I went to Nashville for the first time and I had my six songs and I went in there and I later found out that my producer who produced most of my greatest song, uh, records was James Stroud. He was an assistant to Jimmy Bowen, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so while we got to telling stories years later when he was re- when he was producing me, he said me and Jimmy had gone. He said, I remember that meeting. And one of us was supposed to take it. And we decided to go golfing. <laughs> so they, they left it with another guy who was a flunky. So I show up my first time to Nashville and play him the six songs. And he says, uh, there's no substance here. You need to go back to the woodshed and write some more songs. Ooh. We don't need a male artist. We don't need a male artist right now. And, uh, and we don't need a band. So I said, all right, thank you. So I went back home and I was like, all right, I had my shot and I wasn't quite good enough, but I gave it a run. I got further than most did. I got in the doors of Capitol records and I was, I was cool with it. Well, about a year, six months later, Harold Shedd had got a hold of one of the uh, that same demo, and he was over at Mercury. And for your listeners out there, he he discovered Alabama. He produced Alabama. He uh, discovered and produ- signed and produced KT Oslin, Kentucky mm. Head, Billy Ray Cyrus. He signed Shania. Mm. He signed me. Um, he. He had an ear for Billy Ray Cyrus. He had an ear for uh, for money. You know what I mean? Those, yep. those acts. Yep. One way or the other. Mm-hmm. Made some serious jack. So anyway, he. I got a phone call one morning, and it was a sweet Joyce Triplett, his assistant. She said, "Ask if it was me." I said, "Yeah." And she said, "My name's Joyce Triplett, and I'm. Uh, will you hold for Harold Shedd?" And I was like. Yeah, absolutely. Because I had knew I knew seen his name on the Alabama project. So he said, "Hey, I've got a six song demo here. Is this you singing on here?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Who's playing?" And I said, "It's my band." And he said, "Who wrote these songs?" I said, "I did." He goes, "By yourself?" I said, "Yep." He goes, "Okay, where are you playing at? I want to come see them live." I said, "Okay." I told him. So he flew in. I did two 
I asked the club owner if I could do two 45-minute sets and uh, of my stuff instead of playing bar music. And he said, sure. So I played uh, the first two sets uh, of, of all original music, those six songs. And by the way, those six songs were uh, Should Have Been a Cowboy, Wish I Didn't Know Now, What I Didn't Know Then, He Ain't Worth Missing, Does That Blue Moon Ever Shine on You, a song called Valentine, and a song called Close But No Guitar. And every one of those songs ended up getting recorded. And one of them was as big a song as there was in the 90s. Uh, Wish I Didn't Know Now was number one. Ain't Worth Missing was number four. Blue Moon was number one. Does that Blue Moon ever shine on you? was number one in an album, t- an album title. Well, that's the four songs. That's the six songs that the dude said I needed to go back to Woodshed on. So... Yeah. So did you take needless, so did you take that dude back to the woodshed then? <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, when James Stroud started recording me and I found out he was Bowen's assistant and he was chomping at the bit to record me. And uh we were number one ticket seller, number one album seller that year. Uh we had done everything. And uh and I told him I said, I ought to whip your ass, James. <laughs> <laughs> and then I played golf with uh, Jim, uh, Glenn Campbell and Jimmy Bowen, who had been together for years. And Phoenix, I was in Phoenix, and TK called and said, uh, let's go play golf. Jimmy Bowen and Glenn Campbell want to take us out to this golf course. So, of course, I made fun of Jimmy Bowen. I said, I said uh, you left about 30 million albums on the table there. Yeah. I played golf that day. You know, at the time, that's about how many I'd have sold during that period of his area. But he he just laughed. He was good. They were good spirited about it. They're like, can't we miss some too? You know? Yeah. We can't yep. get them. All. And I was like, yeah, I know, but it uh it worked out for the best. Toby, correct me if I'm wrong, but should have been a cowboy. Doesn't that have the most radio spins of like the entire '90s? That single. Uh, I think I mean, I've heard that. I have no way of proving it, but I've been told that it was the most played song of the nineties. Um, it came out in '93 and then get really popular to the summer '93. You know, I would think there had to be some songs in '90, '91, '92 that were big that had longer airplay. But um, I've had some people via my and at radio tell me that. Out of all of the songs that you've written, do you have one that you are most fond of? Like, do you have one in your mind that, for whatever reason, is, like, in your mind, the best song you've ever written? Uh, I don't. Most of the songs that I've recorded, I think I think there's, like, 80-something charted singles. And then you've got album cuts that you love that they never released. Mm. But be honest with you, um, I have the most important songs of my career, but um, th- when you write them, you know, you know, I, if I think about writing a song and I hear it on the radio or I hear it being played somewhere and I think about where I was when I wrote it or if somebody asked me, 
I know exactly where I was on each one of them. So mm-hmm. they're like kids. You, do you have a favorite kid? You know, I don't know. They're <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, these are like in and of themselves, they were all important. And then about the time you go, this was my favorite song I've ever written, and it didn't perform like one of the big four, five, six week number ones. That mm. does that steal its thunder? I don't know. It's the most important song. You're talking about that that string. That string in the early 2000s where uh, I love this bar, beer for my horses, uh, good as I once was, American soldier, uh, courtesy, uh, I'd love her. You know that, uh, who's your daddy? Talking Mm -hmm. about me. We were just strapping, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that big run through there could have never been possible without um, the foundation being built. And um, the quickest thing in the music business that people will move on from, they grab 200 new artists a year. They sign them. It's probably different now with the internet and social media and all that. But back then, they would grab about 200 a year, all these different labels, grab 200 new artists, and they would throw them out there hoping something would stick. And if it did, they would grab that and let everything else go. And then, but in the year they would grab 200 more. So you could, you could be overlooked really, really easy. And uh, I was almost overlooked really, really easy in the middle of this process. Mm -hmm. Um, You should have been a cowboy kicked the door in. Mm -hmm. It kicked the door down. It come in like, freight train and it established my presence and um, that was such a big song that it allowed me you know he ain't worth missing what second it got to four wish I didn't know now went about third it was number one little less talk was number one mm-hmm. uh, we opened the second album with who's that man um, it went number one I started building a base, but if should have been a cowboy doesn't hit or if they pick a different single, um, you know, and, and it doesn't work and they move on to the next artist pretty quick, you, you never get another chance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. They mm-hmm. move on pretty quick. So it it's the most important um, song in that giant catalog is is that song because the rest of them might not have ever had a life with me recording them. I mean, obviously somebody would have cut some of them songs. I'm sure um, some other artists, but it might not have been me. I may have just been a songwriter, but mm-hmm. right. Bruce and I want to thank you for tuning in to our podcast, which way is catering with Justine and Bruce. If you'd like to drop us a line, You can email us at whichwayiscatering at gmail.com or visit us at varietyattractions.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Brannigan Inc. and Spectrum Weather Insurance. Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce. Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. That's fabulous.